Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Then the word of the Lord came to Zacharias saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint, so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great wrath came from the Lord of hosts, and just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. And after hearing all that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, The disciples scolded the little children and told them to go away. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 10 to 12. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 338 of the Bible as Literature podcast as we've worked through chapter 18 and now 19. One of the things that stood out was the connection to the Lord's Prayer earlier in Matthew and the question of judgment and the time of the test. These connections animate the New Testament as you read forward. It is always important to read forward and in sequence. This question of the pirasmos, the time of the test, is functional here in Matthew chapter 19. Sometimes the test is obvious, as in the example of the slave not showing mercy to his fellow slave when the master had been so generous. But now, in verse 13 of chapter 19, we see a very damning test taken in context of the opening verses of chapter 18, and it doesn't look good for the disciples. The last chapter and a half has been all about Jesus and Peter going back and forth about what it means to keep the sheep in the fold. When is it okay to let them go? When is it okay to bring them back? This is a very difficult discussion, even though it sounds intuitive. Oh, I would never do that. Oh, I don't do that. I would never hate someone in my heart. The whole point of Torah is to get it etched into your brain. They say written in your heart in the Old Testament, but it's etched into your brain so that there's no way you can't follow it anymore. You need to assimilate these lessons and make them second nature, where 
taking care of the sheep and bringing back the sheep is muscle memory. You don't even question it anymore. You do it automatically. You don't have to think about it. I want to read a few verses from the beginning of 18 and then move to today's reading. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck (laughs) and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And now, as is typical of a lectionary that will sometimes conflate sections of the reading to make a point, then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. I mean, thank God for Matthew taking us through endless examples between the beginning of 18 and verse 13 of chapter 19. But even without all of those lengthy examples, which are an act of mercy, because Matthew is giving the person hearing the gospel time to repent before the judgment in verse 13. But you see how if we were to just put those verses together to have a concise reading for Sunday morning, even with chopping text out of the section, the hypocrisy of the disciples is fantastic. I mean, it's otherworldly, the absolute rejection of what Jesus said at the beginning of chapter 18. The hard-heartedness of the disciples is truly awesome. I want to reemphasize, you know, when we hear hard-heartedness, we think unemotional. That's the way that we hear that. But in Scripture, hard-heartedness means stubborn. It means an inability to learn. This is an absolute inability to learn. Jesus has been teaching. He's been arguing. He's been using imagery. He's been going straight forward. Every single tool in his tool belt he has brought out for this lesson And by the end, the disciples are doing exactly what they were told not to do. They are going precisely against the teaching, keeping sheep from coming into the fold after he's been telling them how the only thing that their father in heaven rejoices over is when the sheep is brought back to the fold. He himself has told them, if you prevent any of these children from entering, if you scandalize them, it is better for you if you were drowned in the sea. And they say, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, and then they just go do the opposite. It's as if Jesus hadn't even spoken. It's interesting also to note, Rich, that scholars, when they try to disassemble the Gospels, in order to prove accuracies or inaccuracies or inconsistencies, scholars rarely compare this whole section of Matthew when looking at the parable of the little children in other Gospels. But this is where the synoptic thesis breaks down. Just the idea that you can excerpt a mashal from the Gospel is suspect. 
sure, there are contained stories, there are contained examples, but they're contained in a broader context. If you're going to compare the parable of the little children in Mark with the parable of the little children in Matthew, you have to include all of chapter 18 and a big portion of chapter 19. And even then, it's questionable that the thread that links these verses ends within that section. This is what we mean when we say that you have to take everything in context and even in context of the evangelist you're reading. You can't say, oh, this is what the parable of the little children means. No. Obviously, there is a thread that runs throughout the Gospels, namely that those who assert power blaspheme the throne of God, and those who are powerless are in a better position to submit to the throne of God. That's fine. But what's going on with the sin of your power in Matthew versus the sin of your power in Mark? That is an important question, because this is a long parable. If you look at this in terms of the beginning of 18, and you follow it all the way through, this is a lot of time, much more time spent on the parable of the little children than was spent in other Gospels. So we have to ask the question. Whenever an author repeats something, it's something that you have to pay attention to, especially knowing how expensive writing implements were at this time. Repeating something just for the sake of getting someone to pay attention is not worth it. It really has to be an important point of the story. We know that Matthew is repeating this idea of the scandal, where we saw it in chapter 6 and then also in chapter 18, about how the worst thing you could possibly do is to scandalize somebody to prevent them from moving along the path. And then we have this teaching of the children that appears twice, once in 18 and now again in 19. And understanding also that the major theme in Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. Everyone is potentially on this path to the kingdom, and your job is to help them get there. Anything that would prevent them from getting there is on you. Your duty is to keep them on the path and help them stay on the path, not force them onto the path, because if they choose, they can leave. But anyone who wants to be on that path, you have to encourage them and keep them going, just like a good shepherd. Now, this is different from Mark, which you brought up, Father, in Mark, it's all about the sower and the seed and the planting of the seed, and he plants it and moves on, plants it and moves on, plants it and moves on. In Matthew, the role of the disciples is more specific in that, yes, Jesus is planting the seed, but the disciples have an important duty to make sure that everything flourishes. Remember that Matthew is threatening us with judgment for lack of mercy on our part. That's the emphasis of the Lord's Prayer here in 18 and 19. And he's reminding us that the day of the test, which is why I mentioned that important Greek word, pirasmos, which is translated as temptation and devolves into a Sunday school lesson about being tempted to sin, which is not the point. We're talking about the time of the test. This is a big test for the disciples in verse 13. And it's interesting to me that, in a way, it passes quietly. 
Because if you did not get the message between 18 verse 1 and 19 verse 13, there's nothing more for Jesus to say, either to the disciples or to us as readers, which is really frightening. It's an ominous end to the section because he spends all this time, then you have the example of the child coming forward, and you have the disciples stepping forward to rebuke them, to say, no, don't come. Just after we've been told to bring in the weak and to go after the lost sheep and to care for the vulnerable, they're pushing them away. So Jesus has one more time the opportunity to state the commandment before moving on. He doesn't even rebuke the disciples or argue with them. He just pronounces sentence as though we are in court and the judge is speaking in verse 14. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That is the ruling of the divine court. Jesus is the emissary of his father. He is his earthly representative. He is the son of man and the king of Israel. In verse 14, he is ascending his throne and making a decree. I'm not explaining or interpreting Torah for you anymore. I am just telling you how it is. Leave them alone. It's like a restraining order, Richard. Leave them alone. Do not try to stop them because these are the citizens of my kingdom. So back off. It has the ring almost of a threat when heard in context. If you want to hear it in a pleasant setting in the Midwest where someone says it gently and then you say, oh, how nice Jesus cares for the children, you're not hearing scripture. You have to hear it the way Matthew says it in context of the entire section. This is an exclusive message. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And the disciples are keeping the heirs to the kingdom from the kingdom that belongs to them. People often like to metaphorize Jesus when it works in their favor. They love to use Jesus's metaphors in order to get themselves off the hook. When Jesus says, sell everything that you have and give to the poor, they love to say that this is a metaphor because they don't want to give up their stuff. And when Jesus says that if you're going to pray, go into a closet and pray where no one can say, they say, oh, this is metaphorical because, you know, they want to be able to go back to church, right? The way that the Greek sounds when Jesus describes who the kingdom of heaven belongs to, he says, ton gar tiuton estin, ivasilieton uranon. Tiuton, as you saw, Father, there's some translators who will translate this as those like these ones. When literally it just means of these, of these ones is the kingdom of heaven. That's literally what it says. For of these ones is the kingdom of heaven. In the King James, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. But it's ton, it's genitive, it belongs to them. So here's the thing. It's absurd to think that there's a bunch of kids and they own the kingdom of heaven. It's an absurd thought. What do we do when there's this absurdity? We say, well, we can make sense of that. People who are like children, right? It's a natural place for us to go. And 
that would then jive with what Jesus said earlier in 18, where he says, you must become like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. But here he does not say the kingdom of heaven is of those who became like these ones. No, he says of these is the kingdom of heaven. He makes his point from 18 more pointed by saying the kingdom of heaven belongs to these ones. They own the kingdom of heaven. They belong to the kingdom of heaven. They are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because everything that they did was in order to come to Jesus and have him lay hands on them to hear him and to hear his teaching. This is in contrast, implicitly, to the disciples who are sitting there in front of Jesus this entire time and won't listen to any of his words and, in fact, do the exact opposite. It's interesting because as a judgment in a court case that has been dragging on since the beginning of 18 against the disciples, he's not just putting a restraining order to protect the children. He's now telling the disciples, and guess what? You're out. That's the real significance of your point about the Greek and the mistranslation, because we want to always leave a little bit of space for us to sneak in, but there's no space here. This is it. This is the judgment. The Lord has spoken from his throne. These are in, and you are out. And this is sealed in verse 15, because the laying on of hands is technical terminology. Just listen to verse 15. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. So, case closed, I'm laying my hands on these children. In Acts, when the apostles lay their hands on someone, they impart the gift of the Holy Spirit. It has significance, obviously, in the New Testament, the laying on of hands. Jesus is laying his hands on little children, and then he leaves there's nothing left to say. This is an explosion. This is a nuclear bomb in chapter 19. I've been saying to you, let the children in, take care of the children. You just rebuke them. I'm done talking about this. Bring the children to me. I just laid my hands on them, and I'm walking away. It's like a mic drop. If Jesus had microphones, if they had been invented at that point, this is the time he would have dropped it and walked away, because that's exactly what happened. Jesus set it up. There are two types of people in this world, disciples. There are those who are trying to reach me, and there are those who are preventing people from reaching me. I am on the side of those who are trying to reach me, and I will bless them, as I give you the stink eye, because this is what I'm about. This is the kingdom I'm preaching. This is the kingdom of my Father in heaven. Mic drop. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.